Well, hey, this is your old friend Bill. Whenever I find myself in Davis, I'm busy putting the fun in fundraising. But when I'm not, I always listen to KDVS 90.3 FM. And you should, too. Go Aggies! This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. Joining us later on in today's show was a very special guest, Jeffrey Callison, the news director over at Capital Public Radio. And in our second segment... We will hear from Hannah Shakespeare, a documentary filmmaker, to talk about some very uh, disturbing political news from the state of Colorado. Now, in what we think may be the biggest news story of the week, uh, Vivendi Universal and General Electric have merged. On our show last March 6th, we talked about this issue of media concentration with Dr. Michael Perini and Dr. Gary Aguilar. Uh, Both these gentlemen attended the Project Censored Awards Banquet last week. Uh, Project Censored is something we um, would like to talk more about, their their, their awards given this year. And when we do so, we're going to talk about this Vivendi Universal slash GE merger. It's a huge story. It's getting a little bit of play in the press, but it deserves some thorough examination. Media concentration has been getting quite a bit of ink as regards the uh, FCC decision to... uh, potentially loosen the rules of ownership, but really there's six large corporations that have a tremendous influence on uh, the international media. They are Time Warner, Disney, Viacom, News Corp, Bertelsmann, and General Electric. General Electric just got a lot bigger by adding in uh, Vivendi, which was you know somewhere around seventh or eighth on the list. This is huge, and um, we'll return to it. It's official. Governor Terminator. Now, if you were listening to KDVS, you you will notice that uh, Steve Valentino uh, beat CNN and the major networks to this story. I think he got it from Drudge. I'm not sure where he got it, but he went to, went with it at 7:30. So, congratulations, Steve. You scooped uh, you scooped the networks. Now, uh, I guess Jeff Kravitz on Tuesday was uh, doing a pre-election, or actually during the election show. I hear that uh, Jeff did a pretty good job and that uh, Steve actually came in and acted as a sidekick, which is good. I think that all of uh, we public affairs people um, need to uh, appear on each other's shows. Uh, Steve's been on on this show along with Dr. Andy. We've been on both of their shows, and I hope that this will continue. Let me take a moment here to do a little bit of forward promotion for public affairs. Tomorrow, at the same time slot, on Speaking in Tongues, Gail Murphy of Occupation Watch Iraq and Code Pink National will give you listeners an opportunity to hear her insights about the current conditions in Iraq and about the activities and purpose of Code Pink. And Ron Glick on the same program will have on all three candidates running for the Davis School Board. Only two of them will be elected. And in other public affairs matters, Kirsten Sanford of This Week in Science will be joining us in a few minutes on this very segment to talk a bit about science. And now let's go to the web. The Rose Review sent us by Don Rose is something I want to quote from. Don, of course, is the nephew of our Hollywood agent, David Rosenblum. Here's some of Don's top stories for this week. Catherine Harris and Jeb Bush take Sunday red-eye from Florida to California, insist they are 
just on vacation. Groping for words, Arnold Schwarzenegger shrugs off sexual harassment accusations, insists his campaign loves chicks. In pre-election photo op, Schwarzenegger bench presses female twins to show he supports women. And per Don's report, in what some are calling a cheap gimmick, gubernatorial candidates Gary Coleman and Gallagher join forces to air a send money or I'll hit Gary with a hammer telethon. The event evidently raised several dozen dollars, exceeding expectations. All right, here's one. Uh, Ralph Nader apparently was begging to be let into the governor's race at the last minute, so, quote, I can siphon votes from somebody, unquote. And apparently in the world court, Italy is now suing California for stealing its brand of politics. Now, Don's uh, based in Southern California. I asked him to run down and report that I heard, a um, preliminary report that apparently at one of the Calexico polling stations, which is expected to go very heavily for Bustamante, oddly enough, 2,000 ballots turned up for Pat Buchanan. So I'm going to try and get that one for you for next week. We will be returning to this gubernatorial issue in our third segment today. In a rather humorous vein, we'll be interviewing Fritz Plankenpole, a part of the incoming uh, Schwarzenegger administration, as well as Mr. Archibald Arch Dexter of the California Republican Party. All right, on last week's show, we promised you science. We've been letting, we've been neglecting the science portion of this program to focus in on political developments. So let's do a bit of that. Kirsten will be joining us in a minute, I think, it looks like. So let me start off with something that's a pet peeve of mine. The International Star Registry and other such companies, you will see every Christmas time advertising to you, the public, that you can go out and get a star named after you for a small fee, something like $30. They then say they will send you a copyrighted book that includes a listing of where you can find your star. This is bunk, ladies and gentlemen. I mean, they will tell you, they'll find us on a star chart, some star, and tell you, Yes, this is your star, Heinrich Applebaum. But the truth is, the uh, observatories of the world do not recognize that star as belonging to Applebaum. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a scam, start to finish. Tell you what, we may, if you want to send us 30 bucks, we'll name a galaxy after you. Why mess around with a star? Or maybe an international famous monument. We'll send you a book, a copyrighted book that says, yes, it's now called the Heinrich Applebaum, Leaning Tower of Pisa. I think we have her now via phone hookup, Kirsten Sanford of This Week in Science, which airs right here on 90.3 every Tuesday morning, 8.30 to 9.30. Kirsten is joined by Ted Dunning and Greg Yen as co-hosts, and every week they delve into issues of science. Welcome on board, Kirsten. Thanks. We, we do part-time science on this program. You do it every week, uh, all, all science, all the time. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I want to do just, you know, some topics. I don't know whether you covered these or not, but let's just take a stab at it, shall we? Sure. The moon has been thought of as a great, perhaps someday, tourist location. It certainly would be, a, you know, a, a fun place to go. It's a long way off in the future. But when, when people get there... Hopefully within my lifetime. <laughs> hopefully, indeed. Um, the moon, of course, gives us the same face all of the time which is why it always looks familiar. The same face is pointed in our direction. So if you go to the moon and you want to see an Earth rise, like you'd see a moon rise, well, you're kind of stuck. Right, because the moon doesn't rotate the same way that the Earth does. 
Yes. But oddly enough, there is an area on the moon where you can get a small strip uh, where the, the Earth does rise and set. Because, um, well, it has to do with the, the moon not exactly being in sync. There's a, a, little about, a little bit of wobble. Yes. Good, <laughs> good way to put it. It wobbles a little bit. So you, you see actually 59% of the moon with your telescope here on Earth if you wait long enough. So if you park your hotel right along the edge where that wobble takes place, yes, the, moon, the, the Earth would come up and go down. Probably several times in fairly rapid succession. It, it probably doesn't take all that long, I would imagine. Um, I have to admit, I'm not astronomer enough to know how, how quickly that would take place. That's one for Ted, but here's one I'm sure you and I can handle in full. Uh, article from Discover Magazine last month, because we've covered this on the show before. People believe that the moon makes you nuts. The full moon makes people crazy, that people get arrested on those nights. ERs are full. Right. Uh, psychiatric hospitals are full of admissions. I don't know. Werewolves are roaming the streets. I, I don't know. <laughs> All the wackos come out on full moons. Yeah. But someone did a study of suicides or 58 years in Sacramento County, no ties with the moon. They've done studies of admissions to hospitals. There's, it just doesn't hold up statistically. I'm glad that somebody finally did that. People have fables that get passed down from, you know, year to year to year. And right. people just, the common wives' tales that everyone believes and no scientific fact to back them up whatsoever. And right. It doesn't mean much. Maybe like astrology. I'm going to tell Michael Mercury you said that. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. It takes one person to do some observations and actually correlate stuff and do some statistical tests to see how well things correlate or if they don't correlate. And, you know, you can debunk right away. Which is really what science is all about, testing hypotheses. Yep. I heard something this morning that there's a large percentage of people with lung cancer who believe that they shouldn't have surgery to remove tumors because if the cancer is exposed to air, then it will spread. Wow. Which is absolutely untrue. Wow. And it just, it's, all it is is this wife's tale that has gotten passed around, people saying, oh, she had surgery and then she died. You know, they have no scientific evidence for it. It's just something that they believe in the way it is. All right. Well, Kirsten, you guys talked, I guess, in la- on your show about the Ig Nobel Awards. Yeah. Yeah, we did. I love these. It's a spoof, I guess, of the, the Nobel Prize done every year. Where, where is this, in Harvard? And it's at Harvard University, and it's um, prizes that go to research that should never be done again and, and pro- probably could never be repeated if it were tried. Looking at the list here, a Japanese inventor who studied a statue that seems to be repulsive to birds. Right. I think we shouldn't have that information. There is one statue. I read about it a while ago, and... Um, because birds are your thing. It, yeah, because birds are my thing. And so I find all sorts of weird stories pertaining to birds. So, and so is it true? It's true. There's a statue, this one statue that no birds will sit. All the <laughs> pigeons in this square will go sit on other statues, and they don't go anywhere near this one statue. Well, why do they think that is? Well, it turns out that um, the statue has, a large lo- has large levels of arsenic, I believe. Huge amounts of a toxic compound. So it actually would irritate the bird's claws, or...? I have no idea. I don't know if the statue is a bronze-coated statue and the arsenic is on the inside. I don't know the exact details of it, but for some reason, the birds won't sit on this statue, and the statue happens to contain large amounts of this toxic compound. See, I find that really interesting. I'd like to know more. Yeah, well, I mean, is it something that would be toxic to humans, or is it, you know... 
how they, if birds won't touch it, you know, should we? <laughs> you might just start lacing all statues that we don't want pigeons to touch with something bad for them. Right. Which, which reminds me of when uh, Sylvester Stallone attempted to donate to the city of Philadelphia a large bronze of himself in the Rocky with fists uh, in the air pose. Uh-huh. The city turned him down. And Esquire magazine uh, published it under their dubious achievements of the year, <laughs> uh, titling it, And Thereby Breaking the Hearts of the City's Pigeons. Oh, <laughs> that's so funny. Another one from the Ig Nobel Awards, apparently that cab drivers in London have especially large hippocampuses. Yeah, this is a study that came out sometime within the last year. I remember it coming out, and it's a just a fabulous study. It, they studied cabbies in London and did MRI scans of their brains and determined that they had this one area of their brain that's called the hippocampus, which is implicated in learning and memory mm-hmm. and also in spatial navigation, and found that it was bigger in cab drivers and that it also got bigger with practice. So that the longer the cabbies had been cabbies, the bigger their hippocampuses were. Really? Yeah. To me, I think that study is really interesting. And I'm kind of, I I don't know why it got an Ig Nobel Prize, because I actually think it's a really interesting study. Well, I do too. That's why I'm thinking this is a little bit kind of a low blow to, you know, to to go after some of these. Yeah, definitely. This study, I think, has some really neat implications. And, you know, I think it's one of the first studies that shows a change in the size of a, a brain region in yeah. humans with experience. Yeah. It, I think it's the, one of the first studies of its kind that does this. So I think it deserves a lot better praise than an Ig Nobel, but I'm not, I'm not one of the judges, I guess. Right, and, and finally, uh, Kirsten, I guess there was a, an article that caught your eye, caught my eye, about the world's largest rodent That's from the right. fossil record. Yeah, the, the world record for rodents, and this one happened to live, oh, several million years ago, Uh I think around 8 million years ago, there was a fossil found of this giant rodent, and it's about 10 times heavier than its closest living relative, which is the South American capybara. Which is currently, I guess, the world's largest rodent. Right. So this guy... Super capybara. Super capybara, and it's something like 1.3 meters tall, so Uh I don't know, that's probably taller than I am. And it was said that if you were to, were to have been able to see this, this creature, this um, Phoberomys patersoni is the name that they gave it, mm-hmm. if, you'd, if you'd seen it grazing on the plains, that it would have, on a misty day, that it would have looked something like a cow or a buffalo. The numbers I saw with it, it was the size of a bison in weight. Yeah, quite heavy. Something um, 700 kilograms. Three-quarter ton uh, groundhog. Yeah. I guess they'd found bits and pieces of this fossil, and they just weren't sure, and they just all of a sudden found one and went, whoa. Right. It was a, a student who actually, probably a graduate student of a zoologist from um, the University of Leeds, found this skeleton, and they just stumbled across a bone that was sticking up out of, a sem- uh, out of the ground in an area that they were digging. Well, that offers encouragement for all of our Zo grad students out there to uh, to realize you too may go out and find Ratzilla. I know. And yeah. make name. <laughs> this is a South American rodent, but I can only imagine what you know if this had been something in the in the in Japan, what they could have made out of it. You know, <laughs> Ratzilla <laughs> against Mothra, or. <laughs> Kirsten Stanford, thank you so much for coming on, and keep up the good work over on This Week in Science. Thank you very much. I've had fun. And let's remind people to tune in Tuesday mornings, 8.30. If you want to get, uh, you know, the, what 
the latest week. And you don't do the latest week. You really do, you do a lot of reviews of things. We do a lot of redo- reviews, but we really try and keep it current. A lot of science digest and science news. That's right. All right. Well, thanks. Thanks so much. Let's, You're welcome. Okay. Thank you. Before we leave our science segment today, I wanted to refer back to United Press International article, a dateline Edinburgh, Scotland, July 27th. The BBC says it has finally put an end to the myth of Nessie, the Loch Ness Monster. A BBC team using 600 sonar beams and satellite navigation technology had found no trace of the legendary monster in Scotland's famous Loch. Joining us to discuss these definitive but somehow sad findings of the BBC regarding the lack of aquatic monsters in Loch Ness, Scotland, is someone who grew up not far from the celebrated Scottish Lake. Jeffrey Callison is the news director at Capital Public Radio, the greater Sacramento area's local affiliate for National Public Radio. Cap Radio includes stations KXJZ in Sacramento, KUOP in Stockton, and KKTO in Lake Tahoe. CPR brings you the excellent programming you associate with NPR, such as Morning Edition, as well as fine local programs, such as Insight, which airs at 6 p.m. Sundays. He knows news, and he knows Scotland, so we think he's the perfect person to say a few words about Loch Ness and the legendary Nessie. Thanks for coming on, Jeffrey Callison. It's my pleasure, Douglas. For, uh, where did you grow up in Scotland? I was I was actually born in the border region uh, between Scotland and England, and technically I was born in a in a hospital two miles across the border into England, which was um, a source of much hilarity at my school. Uh, <laughs> I remember one time the kids in my class they joined hands and danced around me in a circle and chanted "Englishman, Englishman." <laughs> But I was actually raised in the city of Aberdeen, which is in the northeast coast. It's an oil city, and so it's uh, changed profoundly since I was a kid. And Aberdeen, where I was raised, is about maybe a two-hour drive from Loch Ness. I have in front of me the, the Times Atlas of the World, and it looks like you're about as far as you can get from Loch Ness and be in Scotland. But that isn't very far. Yes, I only visited Loch Ness once. It was a family vacation. And we were up in those parts, and it was rather strange because we we actually didn't talk about the monster, but it was it was in the back of our minds the whole time. Uh-huh. And I remember my mother had this camera around her neck, and she never carried cameras with her. <laughs> and and we we sort of played games with her, and we said, "Mom, why why do you have this camera?" And she says, "Oh, don't be silly. You know why." <laughs> <laughs> now, we never saw the monster, mm-hmm. and we didn't expect to see the monster. But you know what? It's one of these situations where you know that something's not true, but you'd hate to be caught out just in case you're wrong. And the, the, the awfulness of having been at Loch Ness and seeing the monster and not recording it would have, would have, been, would have been terrible. But, of course, like just about everyone else, we went there, and uh, we did not conquer yeah, you have visions of being there, and this this thing raises its head, and you've got no camera. That's right. You know, we were all familiar with the famous photograph of Nessie, which everyone knows, the one of this sort of dinosaur-looking neck and yes. head coming out of the water. Everyone's seen that. I, I don't know what to make of it. I really don't know what to make of the whole Nessie thing, personally. I, I don't believe in it, but at the same time, there's too much smoke for there to be absolutely no fire. Right. 
And yet I guess that picture in 1995, a friend of the person who took it, supposedly the last conspirator, said, yes, it was a hoax. We made it with a toy submarine with a fake sea serpent head. Well, of course, the, the, the Nessie myth goes back a long time. I've heard that there were alleged sightings of the monster back more than a thousand years ago. And I also heard that some of the, the people who allegedly saw the monster were apparently reputable people. They were sober and they were, you know, soldiers or police right. officers, people that you would expect to be able to, to see something and not be freaked out by it. But when it comes to the crunch, a lot of scientific research appears to have shown up nothing repeatedly over the years. But I think the myth has too much of a pull yeah. on the world and has too much of a beneficial effect on the local economy. I guess $37 million, apparently, of optimistic tourists going to the lock. That's absolutely correct. I, I once heard about this, a man who owned a hotel around Loch Ness, and he had an umbrella stand in his the reception of his hotel that was used uh -huh. for, for keeping sticks and so on. But it was actually the hollowed-out foot of an elephant. Uh -huh. And apparently he used to <laughs> he used to walk around <laughs> the beaches of Loch Ness and, and stamp this elephant foot into the, into the sand. Of course, that might be just an urban legend, just like the, the monster itself. But that, it's kind of amusing to think that there could be urban legends built on top of the urban legend, or rural legend, I guess. When you were in high school, for example, did, did kids sort of think that they sort of had doubts? I mean, what was the consensus? Was there one? I think that most people suspected deep down that there was no monster, but it was something that you liked to think was true, just in the way that, that um, you might like to think that Santa Claus is true right. or something else that, that seems like a, a harmless but pleasant, likable story. I guess we liked to think it was true when we were young. But I don't think many people really, truly believed it. Well, if people aren't going to go to uh, Scotland to, to look in Loch Ness, I think that there's still plenty to see. I was there a dozen years ago. I thought it was a pretty nice place. Yes, it is a nice place. Of course, we always are somewhat blasé about the place where we're, where we're born and where we grow up. Elsewhere always seems to be more exciting. But most people I've known who visited Scotland seem to have found it to be a pleasant place to visit and attractive and, and nice people there. But my favorite time to go is, no question, is in August to Edinburgh during the International Festival. If you've never been there at that time, I would say it's a must. It, it's probably one of the finest cities in the world during August because the range of arts and culture and entertainment at quite affordable prices is, is staggering. It's, uh, it's more than you would find in, in New York or anywhere. And it's, it permeates the entire city, which is a beautiful historic city in the first place. And everything is open all night. There's stuff going on morning, afternoon, evening, and night. And it's just a big party. But uh, it's something you need to book in advance because every hotel in the city is sold out uh, during August. So if you're going to go to Scotland, that would be my recommendation. Loch Ness is nice, too, but you know there are, there are definitely prettier lakes to see in the country. I can't remember them offhand, but, you know, driving around the more remote parts of the Highlands is a much more rewarding loch experience than Loch Ness, which is, is really nothing special. Well, Jeffrey Callison, thanks so much for your input, and we'll have to mark it on our calendar, Edinburgh in, uh, in August. Yeah, no question. Great. Thanks for having me on the, the program, Douglas. It was my pleasure. That was Jeffrey Callison, news director over at Capital Public Radio. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax, KDVS, Davis, Sacramento, Woodland. Let's take a short break. <laughs>